Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash. Making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last. Because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. This is episode 94, The Biggest Scam in History. I'm Gumby. I'm Teresa. And um, The Biggest Scam in History refers to the title of a book that we want to talk about, but uh, before that, we'll get into a little bit of backstory of uh, how we came across this book. Um, We listen to this podcast pretty often called The Propaganda Report, and we first heard of this book and the author who wrote it um, from Monica Perez and Brad Binkley. Binky! <laughs> and, uh, yeah, they do some of the best interviews. Um, can't say I like every interview they do, but um, some of the, my favorite interviews I've heard done on a podcast come from the Propaganda Report. And this was one of them. This was just um, some of the things that was said in this interview floored me, uh, blew me away, and um, it really piqued our interest and wanted uh, kind of started us on a path to want to learn a lot more about this topic. I don't normally buy books, but... Uh... I looked at Gumby and I was like, oh man, this book might be something of interest. Yeah. Yeah. Like we, you know, there's little free libraries and everything. And, um, it really says a lot that Teresa ordered this book and actually bought it. (laughs) Um, the author's name is his pen name is Etienne de la Bautie. Have I said that right? I don't know. Bautier? Some people say it all fancy and some people say it bussy. Whatever. It looks like booty to me. Yeah. Etienne de la booty. (laughs) Squared. Squared. (laughs) And I don't recall why he added the squared. Do you? I feel like, yeah, we we listened to a whole bunch of interviews, and I feel like maybe he explained it once, and, uh, you know, it just kind of went by so quick that we didn't catch it. But um, he gets the name Etienne de la booty um, from a French philosopher that was born in 1530, and died a short, let's see, I guess this is 33 years later in 1563. Yep. Yep. So died pretty young. And um, Teresa, is there anything you want to tell us about uh, Etienne de la Bautie's? Well, first of all, he was a French philosopher. And, you know, you hear about Machiavelli. And um, I'm not going to talk a lot about Machiavelli because I don't know much about Machiavelli, you know, other than hearing people say, like, oh, that's very Machiavellian. But apparently Machiavelli was interested in how government controls people's minds and influences people. And um, it was more for the government. Like, here's how you do this better kind of thing. Etienne de la Bautier was also interested in the way government manipulated us, influenced us. But it was more he was making the case that this was illegitimate. It was a really crooked way of doing things. Um, So he pointed out a lot of the ways that government not only got us to obey them, but to give them our fealty, our loyalty, even our adoration, ways that they uh, manipulate us with propaganda. And keep in mind, like I said, this is back in the 1500s. So, uh, 
you know, we got a couple quotes we want to share from Etienne de la Bautier, the the original. Um, but is there anything that you would like to talk about his life that I've left out? I know you did a little bit of research on this, Teresa. Yeah, I did it a, a while ago, but um, something that struck me as interesting was how young he was when he supposedly wrote uh, his his treatise, his his thesis on this information. And some people, uh, they posit that he may have been in college or like at the university um, when he wrote it. But he was also friends with this other guy um, who some people speculate may have been his lover. They were very intimate with each other. And of course, I mean, nothing wrong with that. I have no idea. Not that there's anything Not wrong. Not that there's with anything that. wrong with that. Uh, but it's just interesting to think that maybe this uh, older man, um, like I was reading the Wikipedia article, you know, so for whatever that's worth, um, may have either helped him with his ideas. Oh, his him. lover was older? Yeah. Oh. Um, or possibly wrote it himself and kind of gave it to Etienne to uh, turn in for a paper or something. So I don't know. It was kind of interesting to um, to read about just how young he was when he was having these ideas. Not that young people can't have these ideas. And of course, you know, nowadays college or university age is considered like, you know, still an infant, barely able to walk and think for themselves. <laughs> Not if you ask them. Yeah. But um, I guess my point being, you know, like, well, Jesus, he died when he was, what, 30 three or something. Mm, got me. Some people, uh, you know, it's still a debate whether Jesus even existed. So, but I guess, yeah. So, um, Etienne young, uh, short life, but, uh, quite a firecracker of his time. Yeah. Sounds like a really interesting guy. And, uh, I hope we encounter one of his books somewhere along the way. Um, and Teresa, I see you have the book. Um, we had a couple quotes we want to share, just give you kind of a flavor of who this guy was. Um, and what his thoughts were. So do you want to share your favorite quote of this small compilation we have? Yeah. So my favorite one uh, that Etienne had written in his uh, in his paper, what's the name of the paper? The Discourse of Voluntary Servitude. And that loosely, um, even though I just said that in English, it popularly was reprinted in English as The Anti-Dictator. That was the name of the paper. So here's something from that. Men are like handsome racehorses who first bite the bit and later like it, and rearing under the saddle a while, soon learn to enjoy displaying their harness and prance proudly beneath their trappings. Men will grow accustomed to the idea that they have always been in subjection, that their fathers lived in the same way. They will think they are obliged to suffer this evil and will persuade themselves by example and imitation of others finally investing those who order them around with proprietary rights based on the idea that is that it has always been that way. Hmm. What is it you like about that quote? What does that say to you in your own kind of... Well, it's just so poetic because if you think about how, you know, when you're young, you may or may not feel like you're a rebel. But, you know, Gumby and I, we were talking about how school didn't really necessarily feel feel right. It kind of felt like something that you had to do. Something that, you know, if you did it, you know, people would say, you know, good job, you did what was required, but just something didn't ever fit. And to think about how in the beginning of our lives, we're all, we're often chomping at the bit. We're often wanting to like make a difference. And like, we see that things are wrong, but by the end of our lives, we're happy to just hand our reins over. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, my uh, favorite quote in this little uh, compilation we've got was, Tyrants would distribute largesse, a bushel of wheat, a gallon of wine, and a cesters. And then everybody would shamelessly cry, Long live the king! The fools did not realize that they were merely recovering a portion of their own property, and that their ruler could not have given them what they were receiving without having first taken it from them. No. I love that, because how often do we... Uh, you know, applaud the supposed generosity or, you know, even this, the, the, what are we getting? The stimulus checks. You know, how long have they been taking taxes out of our paychecks? <laughs> and then we talk about how much money they're giving us. It's our money. Yeah. We're the ones that pay their salary. How handsome salary, I might add. Um, look at the suits they wear. Look at the uh, vehicles they're riding around in. Look at their private jets. You know, so I love how Etienne is pointing that out in the 1500s, you know, like if they throw a big banquet or a celebration, they're doing it with our money. Um, and that's a little uh, back history of Etienne de la Bautier. And you know what I completely forgot to do because I jumped right into this? We were going to talk a little bit about where we are right now. <laughs> completely slipped my mind. I guess I'm just so eager to jump into this topic. That's all right. But we are in the Virginia mountains right now, and, um, you know, as we've uh, shared with our listeners, we, uh, you know, of course, live in our van, come up for the summer to escape the heat, and um, one of the things we try to do is learn as much as we can about the mountains more and more every year, and um, free campsites are a big thing that we uh, try to learn about because they're such a huge resource for us. So we found this free campsite here in the Virginia mountains, and I've been here about a week now, and... Um, you know, we're probably leaving today. Sherlock's about to run out of his dog food. Um, and I've just been kind of reflecting on how fortunate we are to be able to find these free campsites. I mean, there are plenty of days it's like rainy. Some days the bugs are worse than others. But, you know, it's like everything. It's whether I lived in a mansion or whether I, you know, I'm staying out here. It's how I choose to wrap my mind around it. Do I choose to count the blessings or do I choose to focus on the challenges? Because... I've never seen a path in life that didn't have both, and uh, I don't believe there is one that doesn't have both challenges and blessings. So to be out here and to be able to, one of the big challenges of, of living in a van and being a hobo is just getting screwed with all the time. And to have a place that we can park the van, set up our front porch, you know, our tarp att attached to the van, which we have a YouTube video on if you can't picture that, um, and just have a fire and be able to set up hammocks and not be screwed with for two weeks. A lot of these free campsites say you can stay here for two weeks is such a blessing. One of the challenges where we're at currently, um, we're at a higher elevation, so it's generally cool and breezy. Nice view of the mountains through the trees. Yeah, it's May 28th in, uh, in the mountains of Virginia, and I'm wearing a jacket. Yeah, and we're... Uh, and one of the challenges is because we're at a higher elevation, we've sacrificed being next to a big river. So we've got like about a half hour walk to get to a little stream that's enough to kind of do a bird bath in, but it's fresh, pure water. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's been pretty nice, and that's where we're at right now. Yeah, and for two of the five nights that we've been here, we did a survival overnight challenge, which we have an episode on those. Yeah, we're not going to talk a whole lot about that, but we do have a episode called The Survival Overnights, if you want to, if this sounds like something you want to know more about. And so for these um, two nights, we could not have anything to start a fire. We had to make a bow drill set um, when we were out in the woods and try to get a fire that way. And we could not bring any water with us. So I 
just drank out of one of those rivulets, as Gumby <laughs> called them. Um, and so far, so good. I mean, I don't want to jinx it or anything, but um, boy, Gumby was ugh, trying to crank on that bow drill, like mm-hmm. cranked right through the boards to uh, to try to get a, a coal, but um, to no avail. And I couldn't even get my damn bow drill set to be like ready to actually create a coal. So it was a little bit challenging. And we got, I got so damn close. I was using moose wood, also known as uh, striped maple up here in the mountains. And um, man, if you've ever done friction fire, you'll you'll understand what I'm talking about when I say I got the powder built up. It was just the right color. Smoke was coming out of it, but it just wouldn't stay lit. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, the older I get, the more I realize these survival skills. It's really good to learn about friction fire and the different survival skills, but... The real thing I'm out there for is the mental challenge, to wrap my mind around not having a fire, to uh, sit with the discouragement and see what I do with it, you know, to just kind of survive the mental anguish that goes with these things. That's that's the real challenge. And um, one of the blessings I'll say for going for two nights without fire is when we got back to camp and just lit it with one match, our, our fire here that we had, you know, we actually... The little campsite we used for our survival overnight was just down a path from the campsite we had our van parked at, which is kind of hilarious. You know, we're camping like harder core from our original camping <laughs> in the van. But uh, just what a blessing fire is. Oh, I mean, it yeah. really reminded me of how lucky we are to have it. Yeah, without it, it's like we're missing a member of our tribe. And by the way, while we were trying to uh, start a fire as well as do other things in camp, who were we listening to? Almost exclusively. Oh, we were getting ready for this podcast. So uh, <laughs> listening to interviews of all these different podcasts with uh, Etienne de la Boutier Squared. Um, we just saturated ourselves oh, with uh, this guy's philosophy and these interviews. Um, <laughs> and with that, let's get back to topic. So... Etienne de la Boutier Squared, by the, I'm going to keep repeating that. I'm going to have it like perfect by the end of this episode. Oh boy. Um, he he kind of reminds me, like when you hear him talk, he sounds kind of like Christian Slater. Um, if you've ever like been around a smoker and, you know, some smokers, they'll like talk when they inhale. They're kind of like, and then they'll like talk a little bit and then. He sounds like a smoker to me. He sounds like somebody that's talking <laughs> while he's inhaled and, uh. But I don't think he is. He's like, you know, everything I've read about him sounds like he's much more health conscious than we are, um, you know, into hot yoga and uh, veganism and, you know, all kinds of stuff. Um, but a little bit about the man, not Etienne de la Boutier, but the uh, squared the, version, the squared version, double down. Yeah, the square. So um, this guy, he used to help Fortune 500 companies, quote, learn at the speed of light. Hmm. And he said that several times during interviews, so I don't, I'm not sure if that was actually like the name of his program, Learn at the Speed of Light, or if that's just a way he liked to word it. Mm-hmm. But in other words, he helped people – he helped study how people learn the fastest. How can I get information out there to people where they can pick it up, get confidence with it, and feel like they've learned it, they've internalized this, this information as fast as possible? So that was his whole area of study, and he was using it to help people in Fortune 500 companies. He was also a big player on Wall Street, um, was involved in that. And correct me if I'm wrong on any of this information. Something about he worked in an IT position for some 
companies on Wall Street. Yeah, it's it's kind of he's kind of an enigma, which um, you know works to his advantage a lot. So yeah, and uh, you know, in one of the interviews, this doofus that's interviewing him oh actually slipped and gave his real name three times, and um, you know, his real first name. We are not going to do that. You know, we just kind of peeked up because we had not heard that before. But it seems pretty <laughs> obvious to me he's not trying to put that out there. So we will not follow step with that. Uh, said doofus. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, learning at the speed of light. So he's out there and, you know, it sounds like he's kind of an insider in the sort of like corporate world is the way I'm, I'm picturing it. And we've actually heard him tell his backstory so many times that I almost feel like I've heard it so much that I can't even remember it. It's almost oversaturated me. <laughs> so like I said, just definitely don't jump in there and correct me, Teresa, if I get any of this wrong from your understanding of it. Um, but he said what kind of turned him around, what kind of caught his attention was the Oklahoma City bombing. Now, if you're old enough to remember the Oklahoma City bombing, Tim McVeigh, you'll recall that shortly before the Oklahoma City bombing, um, there was a lot of really bad stuff coming out about the FBI, namely Waco, David Koresh, um, Waco, you know, they. Uh, it was this cult and, you know, that word gets thrown around and has a loaded meaning. Uh, Boutier in his book actually makes the case saying that our police forces and soldiers are part of a cult. Um, but this was a religious cult. They're all Christians, and uh, some of them are also dealing guns on the side, apparently legally, not illegally, but they have guns there. The FBI decides to go and break this up. So they go, and the FBI shows up there, you know, and they come out, and the dogs are barking at them at this compound. So the FBI shoots the dogs. The gunshots are heard by other FBI agents who are also showing up, and they mistake that for the people at the compound firing upon them. So they start firing at the compound in Waco, shooting at this compound. There's women and children in there. There's even a 911 call that gets recorded where somebody calls from inside the compound and says, can you please have them stop shooting at us? We have women and children here. Please ask them to stop. We are not firing back at them. They are, they're firing off you know, round after round. So this happens, and then they start firing tear gas Um and at some point, the people in the Waco compound do start firing back. Nobody's showing up to stop these guys from shooting. They got women and children. They feel like they need to defend themselves. Um, they fire tear gas in there, which is apparently flammable. They're still firing, and it sets off um, basically a firebomb. It burns the whole place down, and I think something like 80-something women and children are burned to death. Men, women, and children. Men, women, and children are burned to death. Um, and this is all recorded by cameras that the FBI didn't really want to get out, but it was it, it got put out there. So this information is out there that the FBI would just assume had been covered up. Um, but the media, obediently, does not put the, the bad information out there. What we hear from the media, and I remember this, is David Koresh, polygamist, uh, possibly rapist, maybe pedophile, mm -hmm. crazy Christian cult, lots of guns. Um, didn't they call them the Branch Davidians? The Branch Davidian, yeah. yeah, I do remember that. So this is the uh, the news story that's coming through the media. Um, a bunch of freaky, weird people. In freaky, a country, weird people. In a country that allows freedom of this and that. Ugh, let's get rid of them. 
But the information of what the FBI did has already gotten out there and is kind of going through, you might say, the underground circuits. There's also some story that uh, Botier shared that also caught his attention. And I don't remember this one, but it was something like they showed up at a guy's house, and I think this had to do with guns too, that he legally owned and ended up killing his wife. Um, I don't remember that and don't have any information oh, on that. Oh, Ruby Ridge was the name of that um, whatever happened. Yeah, sounds right. Yeah. So as a response to this, militias are forming. People are starting to say, man, this is out of hand. We've got to defend ourselves. These guys have all the guns, and they are obviously using them irresponsibly. If we don't get together and learn how to arm ourselves and defend ourselves, we're vulnerable. Who might be next? So militias start forming. Now, the the interesting thing about this Oklahoma City bombing is nothing adds up. I remember when this hit the news, you know, the, the story you, you heard in the media, Timothy McVeigh had a bomb explosives, I think, made out of ammonium nitrate, which apparently is a really hard thing to use. Um, it's hard to know how to measure it, hard to really know what's going to happen when you use this clumsy kind of explosive made with ammonium nitrate. And like you have to put it in just the right place for the intended consequence to happen that, you know, that actually happened in the Oklahoma City bombing. Yeah. And he pulls up in a truck or a van, some kind of big vehicle right in front of the place. There's a daycare inside. He blows it up and, uh, you know, all these these kids are apparently killed. Um just demolishes the building, this huge government building. Well, almost right away, people start stepping forward, including an Air Force general, apparently, including, I can't remember the guy's name, but the guy that actually invented the neutron bomb. (laughs) People that know a lot about explosives. And they're like, there is crap in this government building that got blown across the street. It can't have come from this vehicle. This is not the way an ammonium nitrate bomb looks. Um, there just started being a lot of information right away that cast, let's just say, a lot of doubt on the story the media was pumping out to the public. And they were doing that to cover up the other stuff that was bad. Uh, explain? Waco and, and Ruby Ridge. like. Yeah, yeah, they were doing this. Well, my understanding is they weren't so much doing this to cover that up. They were doing this in response to the militias that was forming as a response to this because Timothy McVeigh was part of a militia. Mm. So they wanted to um, get the public tide turned against militias. Mm. And don't we still have that with us today? You know, you hear militia, you automatically think conspiracy nut, racist. Yeah, white supremacist. Yeah. They've uh, uh, a term I've learned from uh, Boutier is anchoring. They have anchored us. So when we hear certain words, it our mind immediately leaps to other things they've made the connections with. Um, we don't think people just trying to, you know, exercise their constitutional rights to defend themselves and being very responsible with their weapons. Um, so there's all this stuff that's getting buried. Now, Boutier says he's got access to, I think he said this was before the internet was at least really popular and widely used. Yeah, I remember this um, particular software. It was called LexisNexis. And I'm like when I was in college, um, I'm pretty sure I had access to it as well. But it was always um, a lot over my head. So I just generally didn't use it. But yeah, it was something um, that I guess if you were in the the inner like the inner circle you'd have access to this. Mm-hmm. So he's using the software and he's able to see like news stories that are being put out by local papers, 
um, just all over the place that the average public person at the time is not seeing. Um, and he's realizing like, wow, look at all the stuff that comes out that's throwing this, this story into doubt and suddenly gone. He can't find it anymore. It's erased. As he says, they threw it down the memory hole. So this guy, you know, he says that was a big pivotal point in his life. He's watching this and thinking, holy crap, as he says, they're running game on us. <laughs> they, um, he says they're running game on us a lot. Yeah, man. he loves that expression. Man, they are running game on you. <laughs> so they're running game on us. And, you know, now he's getting really interested and he begins to get um, – more involved. And apparently he lives near Washington, D.C. So he's like around, you know, these protests, these rallies that are happening, and he's getting more and more involved in this. Um, One story that we heard him share several times, he calls the Secret Service's biggest secret. And basically this took place in 2013 when there was one of those government shutdowns. You remember the government shutdowns, Teresa? Ooh, they're so scary. The government is going to run out of money and, like, national parks are closed and all sorts of other national things, monuments, zoos, etc. They yeah. have to close down because we don't have any money left. People start losing their minds. And I always get a kick out of somebody, you know, that is really terrified of this. And they're thinking, oh, my God, government shutdown. There's going to be rape gangs. There's going to be burglaries. <laughs> there's going to be, like, murderers and you know, I'm like, it sounds like you're telling me what you would want to do if the cops weren't getting in your Ooh. way. <laughs> and really, it's all just because they can't decide on a budget. Yeah. It's just, it's meant to scare us. It's a tactic. Um, and it's meant to scare each other, I think. Because we don't need government. But one of these big government shutdowns, you know, and they, in addition to all the other weird crap they're shutting down, they're shutting down national parks, um, you know, that for the most part don't require, like, um, a lot of funding. You know, there's no reason to shut down some of the things, including war vet memorials. And I'm not talking about just the ones that are inside where you got to, you know, pay people to work there and give you a tour. I'm talking about apparently even like outdoor things that you just go to. There's no reason to shut them down. And this money they apparently don't have, they spend on these orange barriers (laughs) they put up in front of these to shut it down. That makes sense. So these veterans show up in 2013 and they are fucking pissed. You know, they're like, that memorial is meant to honor me and my service and my dead friends, some of whose names are on that wall right in there. And my legs that got blown off and in the but, war. And after the sacrifice that we gave to our country and all the bullshit we've had to go through, now because of all this political nonsense, you're telling us that I can't even go to this memorial that's supposedly on my behalf. That's supposed to be my memorial. My tax dollars paid for this. My service in the military helped, supposedly according to the narrative, secure this for us. Mm. So they're pissed. They end up picking up these orange barriers in front of these memorials and these, uh, you know, war veteran memorials. And they form a line, like as Boutier describes, like about a mile and a half long of veterans. You know, there's even guys with no legs and shit that are picking up these orange barriers and they're taking them right down the road to the White House. Now, it's really interesting listening to him tell this story because he says they are there are agent provocateurs in the group. Um, one of them, all the media was taking a picture of this guy and he's got a Confederate flag. He's dressed like a redneck and he's really meant to kind of show the image to the public like 
you know, this isn't just about veterans with a legitimate grievance. This is stupid racist rednecks up here waving their Confederate flags oh in front of the White House, which currently has a black president at that time. Oh. Um, and that's what this is about. So Boutier is saying he's there. You know, he's involved in this and he's watching this go down. And some of these same agent provocateurs, obviously not part of the movement, but hired by who knows, CIA, FBI, probably FBI. Um, they start trying to lead people away from the White House. They say, all right, let's go to the White House. And they start going the wrong way. <laughs> but luckily, some people correct them and they take them, you know, they say, ignore those guys, follow us. And they take them to the White House and they dump all a huge pile of these orange barriers right in front of the White House. The Secret Service is there, <clears throat> and a lot of them are in uniform. Boutier says that these guys start actually shoving the Secret Service out of the way. They're, like, putting their hands on them. They're getting them up against walls, and they are yelling at them like, you fucking traitor! You know this is wrong! How can you do this? We fought for this country! We are the veterans! How... How can you defend this? How can you defend that son of a bitch in there in the White House? And Boutier says at least one of the the members of the Secret Service was actually in tears. You know, they were upset. Um, so Boutier, and here's where I can't remember clearly, but he's got this huge banner. It is three foot wide by 165 foot long. This thing is a monster. And on this banner is written, Government and Media Run by Organized Crime. I think he had this banner at that rally. Um, he definitely had it at a lot of other rallies. But he's out there with this banner, and, you know, he, say, he, he says in some of his interviews that this is like one of the least publicized banners ever. It's huge. It's bigger than anybody's banner, but they will actually cut it out of pictures when the media <laughs> takes a picture. He describes this time that he had it right on front where everybody could see it in front of the Washington Monument, and they took a picture of the Washington Monument and did it in such a way where the banner was completely cut out. So they don't want this big banner saying that. Yeah, and he actually said that reporters were coming up to him and like trying to get a quote from him and wanting to take pictures, but then somewhere along the line the decision was made that, no, we can't put that on air. Yeah, don't publish that picture. Yeah, or don't print it, whatever. Yeah. So he's out there with his sons. Um, one's nine, one's 11. And uh, that kind of impressed me that he's getting his kids, like, involved, you know? Like, this is what it's like to be an American. Um, and his 11-year-old says, Dad, I don't think those cops and those uh, agents in the Secret Service are, know that this is organized crime. <laughs> and so Etienne says, yeah, they do. They know. And a little bit later, his son says again, Dad, I, I don't think that they know that the government and the media is organized crime. And at the end's like, no, trust me, they know. And so his son says that again, and finally at the end's like, all right, follow me. And he takes him up to a Secret Service agent. And Etienne says, you know, I've got short hair and I've got good posture, so I think people just kind of assume maybe I'm ex-military, so maybe I get more of a uh, open response from these guys than if I look like, you know, I don't know, some scraggly hippie, some grungy hobo like we look like. <laughs> so he goes up there and he says, hey, my son doesn't think that you guys know that the government is organized crime. Would you mind telling him? And the guy kind of laughs and says, well, you know, like I can't really say anything. And he's winking at his son. And uh, so they walk off and the son's like, well, he was winking and everything, but I don't know. And so they end up going to quite a few people um, that are there in uniform, cops, 
different people that work for the government, and he keeps asking them, don't you know that the people in the White House are organized crime? My son thinks you don't know. And he said almost everybody responded with either we can't talk about it or like kind of smiling or even guilt and shame. Some people hung their heads and just kind of shuffled off. Um, but he said he had no doubt when he looked in these people's eyes, like, man, it was an epiphany. That was another turning point for me is I realized, my God, you know, I'm trying to convince my son, but I even more convinced myself, these guys all know this is organized crime. So he starts trying to convince these guys that work for the military and everything. He says, if we all know this is organized crime, why don't you go in there and do something about it? Arrest them. We've got your back. Look around. You're surrounded by veterans. The army is here and they're pissed. This is your chance. We know who the crooks are. We know who the people that are stealing money, who are doing all this crooked stuff are. Let's go get them. Now, according to Botier, he believes this was starting to have an effect. Hmm. He saw people like say, well... You know, you might want to talk to my my superior. And so he goes and talks to the next guy in line. And he says, well, I'm not in charge here. Here's that. And he keeps going up the ladder. And he says, every time he says it to somebody, he looks in their eyes and he can see, he feels like he's starting to wear them down. They're starting to think, holy shit, this guy's making some sense. All these veterans are here ready to end this crime that's happening. And here we are defending the people that we all know are the actual crooks, not the veterans out there. And he says right at that moment, there's like another part of the protest where truckers come in. And I forget, it's like truckers for the Constitution or something like that. But all these truckers come in and it kind of shifts all the attention away to the truckers. Whole line of 18-wheelers come rolling in to protest um, Obama and the government shutdown. And he said that kind of deflated the momentum he thought might be building. But he's gone back several times. You know, I think he does maybe, well, he's talked about doing like an annual thing to go up there and once again walk that same route that they did that day. And he said the story got buried. Like you can't find a picture hardly anywhere of the veterans in that mile and a half line with the the orange um, barriers. And so this whole, you know, by the time he saw it get to the the media, it had been so botched and tailored to be a completely different thing. Now there's a big picture of the redneck with the Confederate flag that was probably a uh, insider, agent provocateur. And Teresa, remember the Silent Sam protest we attended? Yep. You want to talk a little bit about? Um, and then you know I'm not gonna get too much into this because we got a lot of ground we want to cover. This is a part one. We're gonna have to finish in part two, but. We've seen the media spin something that with our own two eyes, it looked completely different being there than what the media (laughs) reported on the news the next day. Yeah, these two, there were only two men at first, and one was older. No, I think they were both older guys, and they had a Confederate flag, um, and they were like kind of both helping to, to keep the flag up off the ground and everything, and... We were just kind of milling around, listening, keeping our eyes open to see what exactly was going on at this um, Silent Sam uh, statue, of all things, protest in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And for the whole time, we were watching these two older men, older gentlemen, I'd say, um, with their flag. They were being like hissed at, yelled at, people like um, throwing their middle fingers up in the old guys' faces and saying, fuck you, you fascist, and all this stuff. 
And the one picture that's associated with that event throughout all the college newspapers and local newspapers here in North Carolina is a picture of one of the old guys that he leaned towards one of the young whippersnappers that had been, you know, like spinning and yelling at him and saying, you need to learn your history. And the photographer like memorialized that moment in such a way that it looked like the the redneck was like about to rip the guy's face off even though it was not that in real life so yeah definitely uh propaganda used again yeah before that you know i'd hear the term fake news and i agreed with it i'm like oh yeah you can't believe anything but it's one thing to say it and it's another thing to go to an event and then see it in the papers or on the tv and like realize like Wow, this wasn't just a different interpretation. These guys didn't give a shit about the truth. They saw the same thing I did. This isn't a mistake. This is an orchestrated fiction. So that was a pivotal moment for me. My the the silent Sam, you know, the going to see what this protest was about. Just two old men that, as Teresa said, all they did was hold their flags and say, "Learn your history." Mm-hmm. Being shouted at and just, I mean, man, it was ugly. So. Back to Etienne de la Boutier squared. Um, his premise, you know, and he that he bases this book that that Teresa bought on, is that the government itself is illegitimate. He says you cannot delegate rights you do not have to representatives to enforce. You never agreed to these rules created by a small group of rich slave owners 250 years ago. Um, you know, and I've been saying for years, like when people talk about laws or whatever, like. I wasn't in the room when people agreed to this crap. <laughs> I didn't agree to this, you know. And in his book, he's got this page, and I'm opening this book now so Teresa and I can both look at it. And this is where he kind of describes, um, you know, the heading of the page is government, the biggest scam in history exposed, the basics for police, judges, and government employees. And he's got this little... Um, Graphic. Graphic, where it's got a little guy that says you, and then another guy, John. If John told you you had to obey him or he would violate you, that would be wrong. The next graphic shows you and John and friends. Even if John claims that because he and his friends are in the majority, you must obey or be punished, that would still be wrong. And the last graphic shows you and then a little building full of people that says government. <laughs> Even if John and his friends vote to have an institution work on their behalf and that you must obey its dictates or be punished, that would still be wrong. If you understand this basic concept, then you understand that government neither has the legitimate or lawful right to violate you just because some people decided, decided to vote for it. So I feel like that's one of the basic premises behind his book here. And um, Teresa, did you have something you wanted to share on that? I was just going to say that was one of the um, the mind-blowing aspects of the book. I mean, there are so many things that I wrote down that were just like, what? Like, we'll, we'll go over a few of those, just like snippets of things in history that you uh, may or may not know, especially from the, um, from the school system. But just to think about Oh, yeah. I didn't agree to this. How the fuck did this happen? 
How did we arrive in such a situation where generation after generation of my family and your family and pretty much everybody else I know has just accepted that some rich guys hundreds of years ago signed a paper and we're all supposed to say, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, he really spells it out and (laughs) simplifies it so beautifully. And, uh, you know, as he says... Your parents, their parents, none of them signed anything agreeing to that this is the way it should be. Nobody's born feeling like they owe the government half the money they make. This is something that's imposed on us. And why does the government get a ticket on immorality? If, if it's ethical, if it's not ethical for me to show up on your front lawn and demand half of your money, why is it ethical for the government to do it? <laughs> Is there anybody out there that believes that 100% of their taxes goes towards things they believe in? Yeah, exactly. Because some people, you know, including my family members, would say, well, what? how else are we going to live in a place that's not just in constant warfare and, and chaos? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the more we learn, of course, the more we realize that the constant warfare and chaos is not defended by the government. It's created by the government. (laughs) This is how they make other profits, aside from stealing it from the citizenry they're pretending to represent. Um, And to build on that, um, you know, he's got this great little section here. And one of the great things about this book is how visual it is. It's in really simplified little boxes and pictures that are really easy to look at and and digest really quick. And this heading says, The History and Facts the Government School Leaves Out. The delegates assembled in Philadelphia in May 1787 for the purpose of amending, not replacing, the Articles of Confederation. Not replacing the Articles of Confederation were very different from the revolutionaries that signed the Declaration of Independence in 1776. The famous revolutionaries were not present. Jefferson and Adams were in Europe. Thomas Paine, Sam Adams, and Chris Gadsden were not chosen. And Patrick Henry refused to participate outright, claiming he, quote, smelled a rat. Out of the 74 delegates chosen, 19 refused or didn't attend. Out of the 55 delegates who showed up, 41 were politicians. 34 were lawyers. Eleven were admitted Freemasons, with two additional that would join lodges after the convention, with over a dozen more suspected. According to Maryland Delegate James McHenry, at least 21 of the 55 delegates favored some form of monarchy. (laughs) The convention operated under great secrecy. Held in the summer months with all the windows nailed shut, sentries posted at the door, and all the participants sworn to secrecy. The proceedings wouldn't be published for 32 years later. Madison's edited notes, 53 years later. It's unlikely that the states would have sent delegates at all if they had known of the conspirators' plan to abolish the Articles and replace them with a federal government, and many delegates openly protested. William Patterson echoed many, quote, We ought to keep within its limits or be charged by our constituents with usurpation. We have no power to go beyond the Confederation. If the Confederacy is wrong, then let us return to our states and obtain larger powers, not assume them ourselves. Of the 74 delegates appointed, 19 refused outright or didn't attend. 
Fourteen left early, some in open disgust. Of the 41 who stayed through September, three refused to sign, leaving 38 out of 74, 53%, hardly a plurality. And they signed not as delegates, but in witness thereof, whereof. Of the 38 who, quote, gave themselves the power to make up rules for everyone and take the wealth of others, end quote, 80% would personally enrich themselves by holding some office under the Constitution, including two presidents, one vice president, five justices, 11 senators, and eight representatives. <laughs> now, I found that so interesting because the Constitution is like a holy document. You know, think about how many movies, and he talks a lot about this as well, where the Constitution is shown with some, you know, heart rending music in the background and a soft light coming down and the constitution the constitution must be defended um when we hear like hearings and the senators are standing up aren't they always referring to the constitution as if it was written by god (laughs) but the constitution says we must interpret the constitution and at the same time we're hearing about like the january 6 uh you know what was it called the armed insurrection oh yeah the fucking Constitution itself was an insurrection. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. That, that kind of blew my mind. Yeah. To, you know, and I'd heard, like, you know, we said we listened to the propaganda report. Uh, Monica Perez will often talk about the Articles of Confederacy are actually what this country is based on. Confederation. The Constitution, Confederate, what is it? Articles of Confederation. Confederation. And the Constitution itself is kind of an illegal move, Um and I never really understood that, so this book helped me, you know, kind of get into that more of like why she says that, um, and to realize that there's this small group of rich people that are kind of instead of you know the the rednecks wearing buffalo horns and shit, you know, storming the <laughs> Capitol in <laughs> in January, we got a whole bunch of rich, very rich, the cream of the crop, the slave owners. Most Americans did not own slaves. Um, some for moral reasons, some because they couldn't afford it. We're talking about the fucking 1% getting together, and they made rules, and oh, what do you know? What does the Constitution help them do? This holy document has made it where they get to decide the laws and rules. (laughs) Oh, sure, you know, there's the little voting, you know, the little rituals we do that make you feel like you're a part of it, but... How easy is it, even back then, before we get computers involved in everything that can be tampered with, to manipulate these results? Who the hell's gonna know? And with all the crap we've been drugged through, the poor people, the racism, the wars after wars after wars, isn't it funny how the same people just keep staying in power? So that all I found very interesting in that section of the book. Yeah, and I don't fully, I'm not going to claim to fully understand um, why they had to do away with the Articles of Confederation. No, there's a lot more there to learn. My limited understanding was that um, the Revolutionary War, uh, people like, there were some rich people that like gave money to help with the war effort to obtain independence from Great Britain. But... They didn't necessarily ever expect to be paid back. It was kind of like, I guess, like a philanthropic donation in a way. But Alexander Hamilton, um, you know, Hamilton, the musical, I didn't watch it. But I wonder if they talk about, like, he was dead set on, like, 
getting the money. And so they needed a stronger centralized government to be able to pressure people out of their money so that they could not only pay back their rich buddies, but also start to amass a fortune for themselves Mm -hmm. so that they could buy up all of the media, whether it was back then newspapers or now TV and um, internet and all sorts of other uh, information sources. So yeah, think about like everything coming from that one meeting just like changed everything. Mm-hmm. And George Washington, you know, let's, uh, Oh my God, that motherfucker. Yeah. Like, <laughs> we, uh, Same as we fucker. found out in our own research, um, as we were doing our U S president's exposed episodes, um, George Washington was soon ushered in as the first president. Actually, I knew that before doing the research. Public school did do that much for me. George Washington. Yeah. So he was the first (laughs) president. And the first president, you know, we hear these stories about, you know, chopping down the cherry tree. That motherfucker wasn't chopping down any trees on his own. He was getting one of his many, many slaves to chop down the tree if it needed to be chopped down. He was the richest man in America. Not not just one of the rich, one of the 1%. The richest man in America. Right. And guess what? After they do this constitution where suddenly this paper gets signed by all the rich bastards who immediately start profiting <laughs> that that allows them this right that they invented to rule everybody, the first thing they do – and keep in mind that before that, one of the things that um, they were drumming up – uh, anger and resentment towards the British was about taxes. <laughs> Tax my tea. How dare you? You know, the, these rich bastards are getting up there on their soapboxes and saying they are taxing your tea. They don't have any right to do that. They are stealing out of your pockets. They're stealing food from your kids' mouths. We need to fight them. So they get all these poor people to line up, and as we learned from uh, our own research with Washington, he had several revolts. People just lost interest in it. We're saying this is not right. They uh, and he had a lot of his own soldiers shot because they were starving to death and not getting the pay that they were promised. Um, so George Washington, right after he becomes president, they put a tax on whiskey. Mm. Instead of tax and tea, they tax whiskey. So the very thing they're trying to drum up all this stuff about to to make you hate the British, now the American government immediately, bam, tax. (laughs) People at the time were outraged. They couldn't believe they'd just been swindled like this, and so they refused it. They're saying, we're not going to pay any fucking tax on, on whiskey. So right away, this brand new government, representing the people, freedom, democracy, sends its own army out on its own citizens to put them out in the snow, to go through their houses, to violate the rights that the ink is still wet on the paper, telling you you've got all these rights. And no sooner do they write it down than immediately they violate it and start stealing from us. Well, they got to pay the bills. And they've never stopped stealing from us, supposedly (laughs) for our own benefit. Yeah. To give us all these wonderful things we have that we couldn't possibly figure out how to do for ourselves, even though all these wonderful things are made by people paying taxes, the workers, (laughs) and these poor representatives toiling on our behalf. Boy, it sure must be hard to have like 
$2,000 dinners mm. and to be flown all over the world and, you know, have all these wonderful vacations and send other people to fight in wars and risk their lives. Well, none of them fight in these wars. Well, I shouldn't say none of them. You get a few that do token gestures. Oh, yeah. Um. Now, I another thing that he brought up that I thought was pretty interesting is calling it intergenerational organized crime. That's one of the the, the things he calls the government. Um, he says the reason why he does that is because if you call it the deep state, if you start talking about you know the tri- new world order, new world order, and things like that, globalists, elitists. Yeah, you got any more? No, that's it. But any of these words, you know, you go up to a cop and you say like. Can you please do something about the new world order? <laughs> Can you do something about the deep state? They're going to be like, what the hell do you want me to do about it? But he says, if you call it what it is, intergenerational, this has been going on for generations and generations, and we see the same families. Um, I mean, you trace the Bush family, you know, you go back to, you know, there's Bush, uh, George W., president. Um, Prescott Bush. Prescott yeah. Bush. And you go back to George G.W., president, also head of the CIA. And then his grandfather, banker for the Nazis, Prescott Bush. Um, it's the same families hold power again and again. What was it we found out about the presidents being related? Oh, yeah, that was messed up. What was that? They were all... Oh, I can't remember now. Except for one or two of the presidents, they are apparently all related. Now, I've gotten into some debates about that, so I'll leave you to do your own research. Some people say it's sort of like a math trick. Nobody can really dispute that. If you say all the presidents are actually related except for... Martin Van Buren. Martin Van Buren. Martin Van Buren. Nobody's going to argue with you. They might not believe you at first, but if they try to prove you wrong, they can't. What people will say is, well, you know, a lot of people are related. We're all related if you go far enough back. And I'm really not sure about that argument. It could be one of those math things like, you know, when somebody says, if I have this penny and I double it every day, how long before I have a million dollars, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Um, But not only are they all related, but all of their lineage trace back to King, do you remember? He was the bad, King John, I think. He was the bad guy in the Robin Hood story. He was the bad king. Yeah. So all of our presidents are descended from this motherfucker. (laughs) So I'm just throwing that out there, you know, because of intergenerational, but organized crime. The government murders people. The government invades places. The government trespasses. The government steals from people. The government swindles us. The government does not take care of us. The poor stay poor and the rich stay rich. And they are highly organized. So intergenerational organized crime. And as Boutier says, it's kind of, um, did you want to say something? Yeah, I liked a, something that Boissy Boutier said. He said, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm an organized crime researcher. Yeah, I like that. And as he says about the uh, you know intergenerational organized crime, you can go up to a cop and say, can you do something about this intergenerational organized crime? And they are expected to do something about organized crime. <laughs> So I thought that was really interesting because a lot of the things that he talks about, there are different ways of looking at these things, but he's found a very strategic way. What's that? Um, no, I think we're good. Okay. 
that our battery might be dying. But he's found a very strategic way that's very practical to bring more people in, and I really appreciate that. Um, you know, just switching words. Instead of using words that don't serve us anymore, that might divide us unnecessarily, let's find words that get the right people activated. Like I said, he studied how to learn at the speed of light. He studied how to talk to people, how to bring people in and, and absorb information in a way that more people can do it faster. Yeah, that was something, um, you might touch on this, but something that um, stood out to me too was he wasn't so much divisive. He was actually, and I guess this is leading into what you might be um, about ready to read, but he's he's wanting to bring in more and more groups into this um, movement that he's, he's heading up. And uh, it blew my mind when I read about like how he wants the, the order followers, the cops and the military to understand that they've been brainwashed and they're forgiven, but now it's time to do the right thing. Yeah, here's a paragraph from his book. I accept my sincerest apologies and then quit working for organized crime. I am truly, truly sorry to have to be the one to break this news to you, especially since I have good friends and family who work in the schools, federal, local government, police, military, or our veterans. If you shaved your head and wear, wore a uniform, if you killed because someone told you to, if you locked up peaceful people for victimless crimes, if you inconvenienced travelers and violated their dignity and privacy, if you propagandized and distracted the population from Hollywood, New York, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, or Langley, it's okay. You are forgiven. We are up against an intergenerational, multi-trillion dollar propaganda indoctrination and control system. I went to government schools and was a Cub Scout and a Boy Scout. It took me a while to overcome the programming. I know it is harder to admit the truth if you are drawing a paycheck, but it's time to quit pretending you don't know the government isn't evil, murdering people globally, robbing the population, completely illegitimate, on its face, and funded by money stolen from others at the point of a gun. If you are in the system and just can't leave, yet, then throw sand in the gears every chance you get. Leak the state's documents, expose the state's crimes, sabotage the state's ability to track, trace, and control peaceful people, and teach the kids in your charge the truth about the system. Now, <laughs> I thought that was just kind of incredible because I've grown up hating cops. We did a whole episode, Police State, which was really throwing cops under the bus, um, justifiably, I would say, mostly. But... There's something that's been happening with the BLM movement and Black Lives Matter. Yeah, Black Lives Matter, um, and a lot of the new liberal left, um, where cops are getting villainized wholesale. Um, people are quitting the police force. They're talking about defunding the police force. And at first, I was like, "Oh my God, this is so good." I've been waiting my whole life to hear crap like this. Mm -hmm. That the whole nation is turning against the cops. But something disturbed me about that. Something didn't sit right because the politicians are going along with it. And I'm like, but the thing I always hated about the cops is they serve the politicians. They're the order followers. So if the politicians are kind of getting on board with the people going against the cops, uh, something stinks. Something ain't right. I smell a rat. And then I started thinking about what the media is doing. 
We'll see a picture of a white cop with his knee on the neck of a black man played ad nauseum. The media puts it in our face everywhere. That's a tragic thing. That's something that needs to be addressed. That's a problem. But what about the cop who's some small town cop that goes out of his way? He actually joined the police force because he thought it was the good thing to do and he had good intentions. And he's watching that shit over and over and people are suddenly spitting at him. People are suddenly treating him like shit. And he, he just, just yesterday, somebody was like, a woman was broke down on the side of the road and he stopped and helped her out, helped change her tire. The day before that, you know, maybe he's not the kind of guy that shows up and shoots your dog. He's trying to be a good guy and he's watching over and over and he's like, how come all the shit that I do is good never gets shown? I still believe in dismantling armed enforcers, which puts me at opposition with the police force as it stands. But I also believe more than that in truth. If I've got to fucking adopt lies to accomplish a truth, how true can it be? If I've got to ignore huge things that are happening at the expense of other things, am I really on the right path? So something stinks with this whole way of dealing with the police force. So I'm amazed that he is appealing to the cops as in, I recognize you're not the enemy. You've been brainwashed. I got brainwashed. I saw my way out of it, and I'm seeing the same shit you guys are seeing. Why don't you join us? That is so much more powerful than turning the people that are best organized, best armed, best equipped to put down your movement, to make an enemy of them. It's so much more powerful to try to make an ally out of them. Reminds me of Fred Hampton. Yeah. Yeah. Fred Hampton bringing the tribes together. That is a strategic, and I'm talking about Boutier, but also Fred Hampton. That's a strategic motherfucker right there. <laughs> Um, I can't believe he has that written in a book and is getting away with it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we'll probably talk more about that later, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. That is incredible. I mean, it's just, you know, there's so many things that I've been holding on to, ideas that I can defend them, I can argue them, but are they practical? Is anybody doing anything with these ideas? I feel like this guy is moving towards ideas that might actually work and it's really exciting and we're about to go into how he's already like these ideas aren't something that might work they're already working one of the things that he's done and did you want to talk about the uh, thick red line movement Teresa? well we had heard about that or maybe it was we saw on the back of a vehicle uh, this flag and i'm not even sure this is the same thing but it had a, a thick red line on the flag and I looked it up, and it was like the Thick Red Line movement. And then we heard Etienne talking about it. And we're, I'm not sure if it's his organization or if he's just working with them. But, um, yeah, that that was also mind-blowing. Go ahead. Are you sure it was a Thick Red Line we saw? Because I actually uh, got it wrong, and I tried to look this up as Thin Red Line, which is in support of the firefighters. It looked like a thick one to me. Yeah. And I, I remember in one of the interviews, Etienne was saying the Thick Red Line Project is um, is kind of reminding the order followers, the police, the military, when do you say no? And reminding them that they can. Yeah, the basic uh, premise of the Thick Red Line movement is to um, approach people in law enforcement and basically... Um, Try to get them to commit to not enforcing victimless crime laws. 
So yeah, if there's a murder or a rape, go do whatever you can to try to address that. But if some dude's just smoking weed and not hurting anybody, some homeless guy is sleeping on a bench, um, somebody's hitchhiking, leave them alone. Leave them alone. This is their country. Um, don't do these things that are, there's no victim in this crime. Because when you boil it down to what these things add up to, usually the only people that benefit and profit by this are the rich. If you follow the line down of like, well, what does it mean to make somebody pay a fine for this kind of shit? Do the cops get raises for this? No. Somebody's getting that money. Homeless people, black people, black people getting put in prison for the modern day slavery, you know, free labor, uh, and more than black people, just poor people altogether. Homeless people just getting in the system, you know, put in prison. Um, and again, a lot of free labor. Um, on and on. I mean, haven't we all like known about victimless crimes or been uh, penalized for a victimless crime ourselves? So the thick red line movement is awesome. Basically asking the cops, where are you going to draw your line in the sand? Because if you refuse to enforce these laws, and you can do that, then maybe we can turn this whole cop thing around. Maybe you guys can like start being more the good guys instead of the henchmen for the crooked government, the intergenerational organized crime. And again, it doesn't solve every problem, you know, like, I mean, I can hear a lot of arguments against cops still. But God damn, isn't it a practical step in the right direction? And it's already something that's happening. Now, one of my questions is, I'm not sure how many cops are actually a part of this yet. I don't know how successful this movement is. But the movement isn't just an idea. It's already being launched. People are doing this. That's incredible. So all this defunding the police force, um, that might sound good, but they're not just going to let everybody run rampant. Defunding the police force might be actually having like counselors come out supposedly to more gently handle situations. And Jesus Christ, if you've ever been around counselors, that sounds like a freaking madhouse right there. But that also means that when the cops show up, they are more militarized because they know if they've been called out, the peacekeepers have failed. They're there just to shoot people. That might not be a better thing. But to try to actually get cops to just flat out not enforce victimless crimes. That sounds pretty exciting to me. Yeah, I was wondering if, um, you know, in the game of chess, that the powers that shouldn't be are uh, are playing. I wonder if this is one of their moves to kind of take the, the wind out of the sails of this movement. Just get rid of the order followers, get rid of the police, um, because then you can't turn the order followers against the powers that shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing I know in the deep in my bones is my real enemy is the uh, rich and powerful, the people that run the government. And, um, you know, if they're in favor and throwing ideas around like defunding the police and replacing it with something, I already know it's going to be bad. <laughs> I already know it. So if there's a movement out there that's more appealing to the blue collar side of the police, like, come on, you guys are human beings. You know this shit's wrong. Why don't you start standing up? Because this can't happen. And we're not asking you to even quit being cops or turn against the government or shoot at politicians. Just don't fucking enforce laws that only target people that aren't hurting anybody. Mm -hmm. I support that. And now let's move on to his book, Etienne Bo de la Bautier, the Squared, the Square. Squared's book. <laughs> the first version of it he called Understanding Our Slavery, and it's apparently gone through about four editions, I believe, now. Yeah, I think the very first title was Understanding Your Slavery. Oh. 
yeah, then it perhaps. was like more inclusive, understanding our slavery. And it currently has the title Government, the Biggest Scam in History Exposed. And it's such a cool book. I can't encourage you, if you're the kind of person that buys books, you know, I don't want to get a freegan to spend money on stuff necessarily, but one of the great things is when you buy this book, it's a reasonable price for a book. How much did it cost? It was like 25 bucks. About 25 bucks. And it goes towards this Free State Project, which is super exciting, which we'll talk about in a minute. But it's like a coffee table book, and it's designed for visual learners. It's designed that anybody can pick it up, see something interesting that catches their eye, and be absorbed and quickly, quickly learn. It's designed so you can get five copies and like, you know, get it out there and wake people up. (laughs) If they don't already know that the government is intergenerational organized crime, it spells it out so simply. You don't have to read this big novel. It's like parts of it are like reading a comic book. It's beautiful. Um, I really love that aspect of it. Yeah, we actually got the cheaper version. We didn't get the hardcover version. We got the soft cover version, but it's still good. Although yeah. I do wish, like, it's better for our lifestyle because we're not, we have not been online. We have not been in contact with the outside world for five days. So it very well could be that we can't even put this podcast out anymore. Um, but the, um, there's links, there's like hyper, what do they call it? Hyperlink blue text in the book. Mm-hmm. And I wish I could have access to that. Cause I know I'd be like, my mind would be blown again and again every time I get more information on these subjects, but the book is a really good jumping off point. Yeah. And the book, as you were alluding to, you know, he, it's, it's, it's made to move really fast and be simple. And if you want to, if you see something, you're like, what the hell is he talking about? You know, if you want proof, that's when he has the flash drive and things like that, that just have all the documented proof and more information. Um, yeah. Cause he's saying that a lot of the, um, videos, a lot of the articles, um, that he's talking about are getting taken off of the internet. And we've been hearing that from a lot of different places, uh, the censorship. So he says 60% of people are visual learners. So this is meant to kind of grab the people that haven't been grabbed yet and to grab them quick. Um, you know, when we're talking about how people learn and propaganda, um, I thought it was really interesting when he talks about Edward Bernays. I heard in one of the interviews, somebody said, would you agree that Edward Bernays is the father of propaganda? And he said, well, I'd say it's Edward Bernays and the Prussian learning system, the Prussian education system. Apparently, this is what um, it started in, uh, Teresa, do you remember? It was like Germany, right? Uh, the Prussian learning system? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So they were having people sign up for the war and they were wearing, you know, these bright jackets and everything. And they they kept going AWOL. They kept disappearing and not fighting and saying, no, I'm not going to I'm not going to go out there and risk my life. Like, what do I get out of it? You're getting rich. You're staying home. You send me. That doesn't make any damn sense. So the Prussian education system, which our public school system is modeled after now, basically realized if we start kept catch, catching these kids when they're young, why don't we raise them to be indoctrinated from, you know, as soon as they can start to walk and talk? Kindergarten. People used to, you know, I'd call it kindergarten at one time when I was a kid and people would laugh at me and say, it's kindergarten. But it turns out that what it means is garden for children or garden of children. Grow children. <laughs> Not just like, oh, help them, like, water them to grow, but, like, intentionally grow them the way you want, like a garden. Ew! Like, like factory farming 
children to be obedient and pliable in the government, in the system. Yeah, and in his book, he gets into so much shit about how school indoctrinates us, uh, you know, gives us one kind of history, tells us all these lies, gets us to salute the flag. Um, you know, they, there used to be the Pledge of Allegiance. I remember when I was in elementary school, they would still do that, where you'd have to pledge allegiance to the flag before you even knew what the words meant. Just indoctrinate you, so by the time you get out of school, it all makes sense. It all makes sense. Of course, <laughs> people are supposed to take money from you. Of course, you're supposed to sign up for these uh, military branches and go murder strangers because people told you to, people that, by the way, don't go themselves. Of course. You know, after 12 years in the education, public education system, they make insanity look like logic. And this started with the Prussian learning system. So that was kind of a new window for me. It's like I'd already heard about what Edward Bernays had done in America. But actually, you put those two things together, Edward Bernays dealing with the public, public relations, and the Prussian education system that controls kids and molds them to think the way you want to, then you have modern propaganda. You don't really understand modern propaganda unless you've looked into both Edward Bernays and the Prussian education system. And that alone um, was a staggering new insight for me. Teresa, I see you've turned to a page. Is there something you want to share? Yeah, there's a there's a quote in the book, and it's a, a rather lengthy one, so I'll just read the first part of it from Edward Bernays, just in case you're not sure this who this guy is. Read the whole thing if you need to. Edward Bernays, the pioneer of corporate PR, and I would just say public relations in general, and propaganda. Bernays says, those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed, our minds are molded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested, largely by men we have never heard of. And it goes on to say, this is a logical result of the way in which our democratic society is organized. Vast numbers of human beings must cooperate in this manner if they are to live together as a smoothly functioning society, which I believe um, Boutsi, or however you pronounce his name, Boutier, Boutier squared would um, potentially argue with. In almost every act of our daily lives, whether in the sphere of... Wait a minute, wait a minute. What part do you think he would argue with? Um, you have to have uh, an invisible government that's pulling the strings so that vast numbers of human beings can be living in the way that we live uh, in a smoothly functioning society. Oh, yeah, I got you. So, yeah. Anyway, that was just interesting to me because um, I have yet to read the... I downloaded it. I sent you the link for um, Edward Bernays's writings, but I haven't read him specifically yet. Do so. you want to read any more of that quote? That was good. Uh in almost every act of our daily lives, whether in the sphere of politics or business, in our social conduct or our ethical thinking, we are dominated by the relatively small number of persons who understand the mental processes and social patterns of the masses. It is they who pull the wires which control the public mind. Mm-hmm. And he taught that, along with the Prussian education system. Yeah, they're using his uh, format for how to do that, how to control the public mind so uh, well. Um, in one of his interviews, Boutier talks about monkey vision, um, <laughs> you know, since we're on the subject of propaganda. Now, here in North Carolina, we got Duke University, you know, world-renowned Duke University. And this study came out of Duke University, and I can't remember the year. But it goes something like this. They had monkeys, and apparently what monkeys love, like one of their favorite flavors is cherry juice. 
<laughs> so they got these little things hooked up where they can drink cherry juice. And um, they're trained to drink cherry juice when they see something they like on the TV that's being shown in front of them. So they're showing them all these random images. And according to what they learn, judging by the, the monkeys like drinking this cherry juice, one of the things that the monkeys really like to watch, and this is unsurprising, is female backsides. Females, monkey backsides. Monkey backsides. Monkey booty. Monkey bootier. <laughs> um, so they, you know, I can just picture these monkeys. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> You know, slurping can, down that cherry juice, baby. I can picture you doing that. Yeah, I kind of want some cherry juice right now thinking about it. <laughs> and that's a monkey backside. God help me. And um, another thing, and I, this was kind of the most interesting part to me, was that they would drink juice when they saw a higher-ranking monkey. So the monkey hierarchy, let's say that in your troop of monkeys, you're number six. There are five monkeys that rank higher than you. You will enjoy watching one through five. Not so much seven on down. The, those monkeys are unimportant. But you want to watch the, the monkeys that you perceive as your betters. If you're number two in line, you don't care about three and four. You just want to watch any images of number one. If you're number one, I guess you just want to watch a lot of booty backsides. <laughs> Which is, I mean, that is uh, relatable to our society, right? Yeah, think about that. Think about what hooks us on TV. Think about this mania over, ooh, what's Kim Kardashian doing? Uh, celebrity gossip. Oh, the, the royalty. Demi Lovato. All the people that we think have higher social status than us, we're fascinated with. And, you know, I guess if you're as low down as us, you know, hobos, I mean, I guess everybody's fascinating. <laughs> but somehow I think we've kind of flipped the script a little bit because I don't find that shit too fascinating. But the public at large, it makes a lot of sense. You know, that's a, a window into propaganda. And another thing that, that they really enjoyed was motion, anything that was moving. And so monkey vision is a camera technique, too. Think about, shit, I think... I think 24 does this, but you'll see it in a lot of shows where the camera is spastic. It won't fucking stay still. The office does this, come to think of it. Oh, yeah. They'll, like, look across the office at the it's other It's constantly person. moving. So, you know, this is a primal thing that they're using propaganda because they know that it doesn't even matter. Even if we don't like the show, we're more apt to watch it because there's more motion. And it will improve our opinion of it just a little bit. I'm not saying if you absolutely hate a show, all they got to do is move the camera around you're going to love it. I'm saying if you kind of like a show, but they move it around, you might kind of really like the show. Because hmm. it's that primal wiring that the monkeys and we share because our, our, our primal ancestors needed to tune into motion. Hmm. The monkeys that didn't tune into motion, they died. They did not produce offspring. We are the descendants of monkeys or human beings that paid attention to what's moving. So that study was really interesting. He talks about the weaponized dictionary, um, continuing with propaganda, and you know how the dictionary is weaponized. I first ran into this when I watched the movie Malcolm X with uh, Denzel Washington playing Malcolm X, and he gets put in prison, and he meets this black guy that's... Uh, Islam and is Muslim? Muslim. Muslim. And he's saying, look up the word black in the dictionary and look up the word white. Mm. And sure enough, you look up black, you run into like bad, dirty, dark, blah, blah, blah. White, good, shining, pure. white night, pure. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting. So that was the first time I remember thinking like, wow, 
You know, like maybe these words I thought were just neutral aren't so fucking neutral. And God, we see that all over the place now. When you start looking for this, my God, the words that are coming out from white privilege to, um, wow, you got one off the top of your head? Nope. Yeah. <laughs> Hard to think of one off the top of your head, put you on the spot. But if you think of one, chime in there. Because there's so many good ones that are are meant to steer us down a certain way of thinking. And, um, you know, he says, control the words, control the culture, control the way we think. For instance, you know, I mentioned in uh, our last episode, Off the Rails, how the Eskimos have 100 words for snow. That helps them see snow in a much more refined way. They can understand all the different kinds of snow. I don't go sledding in that snow. That kind of snow is all right. Ooh, the polar bears will probably be out in this kind of snow. We only see one kind of snow, so we only have one word for it. We have all these damn words about uh, what we like to fuck. You know, like, what are some of those ones that you were learning? Oh, um, asexual, demisexual, gray. Bisexual. Bisexual, gray Homosexual, gray sexual. I mean, all these things that just are supposedly letting you know where you want to put your genitals, who you want in your genitals, who you think you are when you're uh, using your genitals. I and, mean, and, and specifically, I mean, not that this is a podcast about that, but just like labeling and making sure that there is a word for everything. And just remember that words can be weaponized. Mm-hmm. And I kind of enjoy the way he's recognizing that. And then he uses a lot of words himself that he's kind of like creating a different narrative, like a uh, plandemic. You know, that's one I had heard before, um, you know, and it's just loaded with meaning, plandemic. Like there's something going on here that's not just about a virus and a health scare. Um, lamestream media. Uh Powers that shouldn't be. Yeah, I like that one. <laughs> Constitution. Oh. Testily. Get Testify. up on the stand and testily. Yeah. Um, uniform. One form. Um, you know, one type of uniform that you wear, one type of form, one type of thinking, just uh, uh, homogeneity. Mm-hmm. Um, and tell lie vision. I like that one too. <laughs> You know, and his pragmatism, um, he calls himself a voluntarist. And he said he was a former libertarian until I realized just how corrupt the government was. And uh, when he realized the depth of the corruption of the government, he felt like libertarian didn't, libertarianism doesn't make any sense anymore. Now, voluntarism... If you've ever heard of anarcho-capitalism, and I remember the first time I ran into anarcho-capitalism, I was like, that's an oxymoron. How the fuck can you be an anarchist and a capitalist? Um, It is closely relayed to voluntarism. He says voluntarism is a rebranded anarchism, a rebranded word for anarchism. Anarchism has gotten a pretty bad name in a lot of circles. You look it up in the dictionary, it equates with chaos. If you're just talking to somebody who doesn't already consider themselves an anarchist, what they picture, because of the propaganda, is throwing bombs, blowing things up, senseless violence, uh, chaos, you know, descend into anarchy, erupted into anarchy. Um, it's got a stigma. So I think wisely, he's like, why would I keep using this word that they've turned into their propaganda? What about voluntarism? I believe that I don't have any right. Well, let me read you his definition of voluntarism. Voluntarism, the rebrand. 
a political and social philosophy that all forms of human association should be voluntary and based on the non-aggression principle, NAP, that posits that any initiation of violence on peaceful people is illegitimate, no matter what the outcome, but allows for the use of force in self-defense or to protect property. In a voluntary society, all the services provided by government, from protection to roads to charity, would be better provided by voluntary interaction, the free market, and real charity. Um, and I like that. I, I like the premise of that. Um, anarcho-capitalism, I'm still trying to wrap my head around. I'm trying to be open-minded about it. Apparently, a lot of anarchists say that there's no such thing, um, that those two things can't go together, as I you know, have, have thought and maybe still do. I'm trying to right now, you know, I'm trying to set down a lot of ideas at the moment and like at least try to understand other ideas, whether I adopt them in the long run or not. Um, so I like the voluntarism of it. I like that nobody has the right to tell you what to do at all. You know, you can protect yourself, of course. Um, but you can't impose your values. So in other words, you know, I heard one interviewer say, I've got a lot of friends who are anarcho-communist, and they are dead set against uh, anarcho-capitalist. But the thing with the voluntarianism is if you want to be an anarcho-communist, you can. If you want to be a socia socialist, you can. You just can't impose it on other people. In other words, the government as it stands couldn't shift to socialism because the government as it stands imposes their values on the whole nation. In other words, kind of like tribe. Yeah, it's a lot more tribal the way I see it. Um, my problem with anarcho-capitalism and the free market is I've always identified, identify, I always identified as an <laughs> anarcho-primitivist. And um, as an anarcho-primitivist, I feel like one of our main uh, enemies, our dangers, is industrial society itself, the way we live. So if I see a failing from my point of view with voluntarism and anarcho-capitalism, and we've listened to at least 10 interviews mm. with Etienne Bautier, nobody brings up the environment. Not once. Not once. That troubles me. That's my big, biggest criticism. So I don't think it's good to have a government to be in place to regulate corporations. But at the same time, if industrial society is in place and everybody basically gets to do what they want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, isn't that kind of a vague line? Like, what if somebody wants to make their money chopping down trees? Now, nobody's directly getting hurt. You could make the argument that people are getting hurt in a more peripheral way, because if we hurt the forest, we eventually hurt ourselves. And how does this address species extinction? Um, climate change, which I know there's a lot of debate about if there's climate change, what it means, what's causing it. Is it something we should even fight? So I'm kind of bothered that it doesn't get addressed at all. I mean, if, you, if you're saying, like, well, here's why we don't address it, good, I want to hear that. But just to completely ignore it as if it's a complete non-issue, I mean, I can look around and notice that the woods are getting fucked up. I don't need to believe in climate change. 
I don't need to believe in a lot of the things that, you know, could be propaganda for all I know. They might not even be happening. You tell me about polar ice caps melting. If somebody convinced, you could convince me that's a lie because I haven't seen it. You're not going to convince me that people aren't going in the woods and fucking shit up. I see that. So that's something I see missing from this story that otherwise the voluntarianism sounds really good. And I'd like to invite anybody who's more educated on that because there's so much good about that that I want to get behind. If voluntarianism has a good way to address that, please inform me and educate me on that. Theresa? Yeah, I've um, I've also been thinking about the voluntarism and the environment. And I was thinking in terms of, for example, Standing Rock, how so many people came together. They got organized and uh, started protesting this pipeline that was going to be going through um, – territory uh, for Indians and also people that weren't necessarily of, uh, you know, indigenous descent, but they were like really adamantly opposed to harming the environment. And I believe the National Guard was called in or some sort of uh, government block happened. So, you know, Gumby, you were talking to me about this, like assuming that there wasn't a government to back these corporations by sending in militarized groups to defend them, there quite possibly, you know, would be a different outcome. That's not to say that the corporation uh, in an anarcho-capitalist society wouldn't have their own protective services like the Pinkerton army, right? Mm -hmm. But it's possible that maybe it would be a little more even as far as the general population and the people who are called in to protect the interests of the corporation or industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talked a lot of it about a lot about this yesterday. And uh, without a voluntarist here to represent themselves, I was trying to play the devil's advocate and try to think, okay, if I was a voluntarist with what I understand about the voluntarist philosophy right now, what might I say to someone who says, what if a coal company comes in and they want to coal mine here? And, uh, you know, if you've, you know, there's all kinds of bad products that come from mining that poison water that can be just horrible for the land. So I'm thinking, what would somebody do with no government regulation? And it occurs to me that maybe somebody might have the idea, well, I'd like to do this. Most company, most communities, I feel like, would probably oppose that. Most people that live in a place want that place healthy and beautiful. So I guess there's a certain optimism of humanity, and I hope that optimism is legitimate, because keep in mind, I think people are innately good, but we've been indoctrinated. We've been driven insane. So until we heal from that... I wonder how much confusion would be around that. And if somebody tries to impose something that's bad for the environment, let's say the coal mining company shows up, uh, maybe the, the community is says like, okay, I'm fine with that. But then the coal co- mining company starts really screwing up stuff. You know, they show that they're bad for the environment. Now the people say, this needs to stop. Keep in mind with this philosophy, you can defend yourself and your territory. You just can't go out of your way and and fuck with peaceful people. Now the coal baron, unlike our government, can't call in armed forces. The community will probably outnumber them, overwhelm them, and will probably enlist the aid of other communities who also don't want this kind of destruction to the land. 
this is the way I, I would imagine it might go down in a voluntarist society. So, you know, he talks later about um, how the the nature, the universe is actually self-organizing. We don't need the government. The government actually is the cause of so many things it pretends to defend us from. And so I'm kind of considering, you know, when I think about this concern, is the government actually Actually, I don't even need to ask the question. The government is empowering the greatest polluters, the things that are the worst for the environment. The government is what protects these people. What? Because the companies are the government. They're they're pulling the strings. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the army shows up, the National Guard, um, not to mention all the support that the people for these corporations get because of lobbying and, you know, like you said, behind the, the scenes pulling the strings. So... You know, I'm not quite sure how that works. It's something I want to think about more, but I could see a possibility there. Yeah, the other thing that came to mind, because I was really fighting this. I was like the unruly child that doesn't, that's not paying attention in school. And I was just like, how the hell is this going to work? I mean, the environment's going to get decimated. But something that I think might happen and that I would hope would happen is... If this is uh, if this is a movement that gets momentum and it starts, you know, becoming reality, people are going to have to turn their brains back on, their heavily laden mercury aluminum ridden brains. <laughs> They're going to have to turn those rusty things back on because if someone's coming to your community and saying, you know, hey, we're going to offer you know 600 jobs if you can just uh, you know sign over the rights to your land and your clean water and you know all the the soil and the air and the the fish in the water, um, you know you can have this money. You're going to have to organize. You're going to have to get people rallied up. You're going to have to win because there's not going to be a government regulation. And, you know, again, I'm not saying government regulations are great. God knows. Um, And I'm also not saying that people would do that. God knows we just left Waynesboro, Virginia, and they had DuPont factories that um, have and may still be. uh, They were bought out by some Chinese company. They may still be polluting the 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 arteries, the waterways within their town. You're not supposed to eat the fish because of the pollution in the water. Um, beautiful water. You just can't see whatever's supposedly in there. And who you even can knows? Smell it. Who even knows if that's you know real? But the whole thing is, people are going to have to wise up and and get tuned back in and turned on. Yeah. And we're going to have to end this episode here. We're only about halfway through the topics we want to cover, but uh, definitely tune in for part two. Uh, there's so many really juicy, interesting things that we want to get into. Um, but I will say this. Um, one thing we didn't get around to this episode that I'm going to get around to right away in the next episode is the Free State Project. So, again, we can talk a lot about what it might look like, but it's already happening. I can't believe what the fuck is happening in New Hampshire. So don't wait for our episode. <laughs> Go look up New Hampshire Free State Project if you want to fucking your mind blown. Um, and the Art of Liberty Foundation. Wow. I had no idea. And the media is not fucking whispering about this shit. So with that said. I just want to say one other thing. Yeah, go for it. Um, of all the podcasts that we listened to, I think all but two we're just sitting back and letting Etienne like do his thing, which is fine. He's he's really get great at making the presentation, but like hardly anybody even questioned the man, 
the book, the information. And so we're going to do our best. We've, you know, already started to, but we're going to do our best in the, uh, the part two, part two, <laughs> to, um, to really bring our questions, our criticisms and any other information that comes to light. Yeah. Yeah. We don't want to just be, uh, you know, kind of unthinking cheerleaders. We want to, uh, approach this with as much intelligence as we can muster and uh <laughs> which is basically just gumby <laughs> god help us all because gumby's thinking about monkey backsides oh and beer don't forget beer oh yeah yeah i've been out of beer for a couple of days so whoo rough um so our listener right in is our good friend tim from maine Tim's got a lot of good comments. That's why we pick him a lot. Tim, I've been watching Storm of the Century trying to uh, get my main accent right. So. Well, shit. I uh, I was going to read this. <laughs> no, 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 no. Come on, come on. I haven't practiced. I haven't practiced enough. I want you to do it. All right. Maybe next time. All right, I'm going to do my best main accent. <clears throat> and this is in response to Shots, the dog and the wolf. And if you haven't listened to any of our Shots, I really encourage them Um I'm trying to encourage people to share our podcast more, and shots are a great way to share our podcast. Some of them are only like five minutes long, and they're just little excerpts from our episodes that uh, we really enjoyed or appreciate for one reason or another. Uh, the longest one is 40 minutes, so around like, I don't know, two minutes to 40 minutes. That's a shot. <laughs> um but yeah, our shots are, I really love the shots. And I they have a lot of fun. They don't include any mercury or aluminum. Yeah. <laughs> they might make you stupid, but not for other, for, not for the same reasons. And the dog and the wolf was a really fun one, um, in which I told the Aesop's fable of the dog and the wolf and what it meant to me in my life. So he's responding to that. He wrote, "This election cycle, the red and the blue dogs are fighting over which tree they want to be tied to. By the way, the tree is dead, and it won't be providing much shade. I suspect the chain slipped around the trunk too much and has girdled the tree." And the trench at the end of the chain is now very deep, and the poor dogs can't even see out over the rut they have worn into the ground. Pretty sad when you think about it. <laughs> so I really like his uh, imagery there. You know, I, it almost sounds like a little uh, a fable in, in itself, his little response there. And uh, yeah, I like like what you're saying, you know, just two dogs tied to the same tree, the same problem, and, you know... The tree's in dire jeopardy or dead already, you know, because they've been fighting over it. And uh, it doesn't matter who owns the tree. It matters, is the tree alive? And just doing the same shit over and over, you know, at the end of that fucking chain. They're both slaves. They're in the end of that fucking chain doing the same thing over and over, worn in a rut so deep that now they're blind. They can't see out over it. I think that's a really good comment. And maybe the voluntarism movement can uh, get us out of that rut. Who knows? Yeah. And again, you know, you might be kind of like me. Like, I'm an anarcho-primitivist, and my first reaction is like, eh, voluntarism, it's not me. But that's their game. Divide us, divide us over every little stupid fucking thing. They're running game, man. What if it's close enough for now? What if instead of, like, I mean, who's making strides to take down industrial society? How the hell do you even do that? I can't even get a fire on a fucking bow drill set. Yeah, I understand why this isn't happening, because we, even we struggle with it, and we practice more than most people. But what if we can rally behind something like voluntarism? It's it's beautiful, and it's something that, like, I don't know. It, it got me excited. Um, 
So if you have any questions or comments, please visit our website, www.escapingsociety.weebly.com. We have a Facebook page that we post a lot of crap on. Some of it's worth seeing. Some of it, uh, we try to, you know, talk about like our experiences as we hit the road, share pictures, uh, favorite memes, um, information that we think is relevant, you know, uh, controversial shit, a lot of stupid crap, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff. It's Mm -hmm. a potpourri. It's a potpourri, really. Mm -hmm. Um, Our Facebook page, Escaping Society. We have a YouTube channel that we have not done anything with for a while, but there's a lot of good stuff there, especially if you want to learn about plants and uh, some survival skills, some scavenging skills. We've got videos on stuff that's hard to talk about. Um, (laughs) What are you laughing at? There's a video of me washing my... Yeah, there is a video of Teresa washing her ass. (laughs) Prove me wrong. (laughs) Washing my undercarriage. We have on the website I mentioned, the WW Escaping Society, um, there's a donations button. Um, we are working on the value for value system. So if you've derived any value, any entertainment, education, if you've been challenged, if you've gotten any value from our podcast, um, please reciprocate with some value. Um, financial donations are always, of course, lovely. We use them to fund our continuing adventures and travels. If you are like us and not really in a position to give financial donations so easily, um, please send us a question or comment. We really appreciate them. Um, we try to read them as we just did Tim's remain. Um, also reviews. Um, if you're listening to us, I, I think I heard that Apple, especially, you know, if you give good reviews, they, broadcast they promote your your podcast more um give us five stars if you think we deserve it um give us a written review you know just give us a few sentences give us something for god's sake (laughs) and please share as i said uh the shots are great ways to just you know if you thought we were uh shared anything of any value you know pick out a shot and get your friend to just listen for two minutes like oh man listen to this um And I guess that's it for us. You got anything else, Teresa? Nope. Bye. Please tune back in. We have got some really cool stuff we want to share that we've gotten from this book that we didn't get around to this time. So see you next time. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it because we'll be gone over that next horizon. We ain't got no ass.